Founded in 2013, Pantera Capital is one of the oldest investors in the nascent market for digital currencies. Having previously made headlines for its eye-popping 25,000% plus returns in Bitcoin back in the heyday of 2017, it might also be one of the most recognizable brands. On this episode of The Scoop, The Block welcomed Pantera Capital partner Paul Veratatakit to talk about the firm's history, why it sees more room for investing in the crowded cryptocurrency exchange market, and how the firm plans to fend off new upstart challengers in the years to come. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. It's also a favorite of the block's analyst, Steven Zhang. He saves money at Chipotle every time he gets a burrito. That keeps Steven happy, that keeps the block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in to what is going to be a very special episode of The Scoop. Coming in all the way from San Francisco, we have Paul V., and I'm saying Paul V because I cannot pronounce his name. <laughs> this is where our amazing co-host, Matija Leibowitz, is going to shine. Veratitaket. Yes. Veratitaket. Bingo. So he's over at Pantera Capital, where he is a partner at the venture capital investing firm. And he has, they have a very wide-ranging portfolio, which includes, full disclosure, an amazing media outlet based in New York City uh, called The Block. Uh, but they, they, aside from that amazing investment, um, which is just great, hundred you know, <laughs> X, uh, they have a very wide ranging portfolio, Abra, Civic, Brave, Blockfolio, Bitstamp, Bact are just some of them, but there are many, many others and probably the largest in the space, or at least one of the largest with $600 million under management. Of course, they're known for their very impressive leader. Um, Dan Moorhead, who you know has been an investor for several decades and started the firm back in 2003 as a macro hedge fund, and then ultimately he found his way, as we all have at some point, down the crypto rabbit hole. And uh, Paul was one of the earlier employees once they made that that switch. And we're really excited to have you on. Uh, but let's just dive right into you know. Let's do you, it. Let's dive right into VC world and and think about the trend shaping that space. Um, there's probably a, you know, seeing all the deal flow go through, yeah. 
um, you're seeing the trends kind of similar to, similarly to us before they happen and getting to you know, judge these companies based on their products. And, it's a symbiotic relationship. You yeah. Guys well, things. Teo, what, what was it that you said yesterday? You know, we, we, uh, they judge products based off with their money. We judge them with our words. Was that what you said? We invest in these yes. products with our words. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So both are equally valuable. I think so too. Let's, let's go into how you approach that just broadly. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think, um, you know, for Pantera, I mean, being that early in the ecosystem, I mean, we had an opportunity to really just, you know, become become thought leaders. I mean, really, you know, do whatever we could to push the ecosystem forward. That meant everything from investing to uh, spending time and, and, and really uh, helping to, you know, uh, focus on regulations, helping people with banking. So it's really deploying capital, but it's actually... Uh, going beyond that to really provide our thoughts on what's needed for the ecosystem, helping to provide some of these value-added services. Uh, on the investing side, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's changed quite a bit. I mean, when I joined Pantera in 2014, there were only really 20 companies. I could write them all on a napkin. And, and then from there, it was deciding which ones were going to be cornerstones of the ecosystem. Guys like Circle, Zappo, Bitstamp, you know, 21 at the time, you know, guys like Coinbase. And then, you know, shifting over, our thesis has really expanded. Uh, but some of it still stayed the same. I mean, you know, since 2014, we've always been looking for ways to get people into this ecosystem. How do we get mainstream people, you know, using cryptocurrencies? Well, the first thing was around how do you provide the on-ramp to get into cryptocurrency? How do you how do you get it? How do you store it? How do you secure it? How do you start doing things with it? Which, you know, all the way up until now has been a lot of speculation. So, you know, a lot of our infrastructure projects have really uh, started off with, you know, exchanges, wallets, security providers. And then after that, it was, you know, some early use cases around, like, how do we move Bitcoin across the world? How do we do cross-border payments? And then now, I mean, since, since the ICO boom, it's really infrastructure that's going to support a multi-token world, uh, a smart contract decentralized application world, uh, and of course being able to now get uh, on-ramps for not only decentralized applications but also institutional capital. And so it's really you know, expanded over to uh, institutional infrastructure, uh, consumer finance, decentralized finance, developer tools, uh, gaming, NFT, security tokens. I mean, we're, we're, we're kind of, you know, spreading ourselves across all these different verticals. And at the end of the day, knowing that, like, capital is going to be more of a commodity, we're building a platform where as you enter in the Pantera portfolio, you get to really connect with other companies and really leverage those resources. You know, one of our most, you know, awesome investments is the block. I mean, again, like, you know, who... Who wouldn't want their words, you know, to 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 be out there as as a, as a as as sort of a, a weapon to get you know like the message out, and then you know other well, things. What, so you guys have five categories um, in terms of how you break down the way you allocate capital into exchanges, infrastructure, sure. finance, payments, and enterprises. Where would the block fit into that? And how do those categories influence your? investment decision making are they the same is it yeah you know I, I think for us like we we consider the block to be you know one of the cornerstones of the ecosystem you know again like 
if this is going to get large, you're going to need people to distill all of these technologies, all of this information into things that people can digest, read, understand, be able to show to their mom, et cetera. And so you guys do that. You guys provide that service to the ecosystem. We see a lot of growth potential. We see a lot of help that you guys can provide to the rest of our companies. And so I sort of put you guys in that like information um, sort of dissemination, almost like a blockfolio sort of thing where it's going to, you know, education, media, like uh, could be big data. I mean, there's, there's so many different ways that you know, the block could evolve. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, there's only a small number of, of folks that can sort of get into that category of uh, information dissemination. And I see you guys being, you know, a crucial piece of that. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> I think um, what's interesting is that exchanges is sort of off in its own category as opposed to falling under infrastructure. And um, the, the amount of investments you've made in that space have been two, right? You have backed and then the, I'm seeing an undisclosed investment. Yeah. So, so we... Have you announced that? You know, I'd have to... Th I'm not really quite sure because we have a we have a bunch of undisclosed this is investments. This the Latin American exchange. Oh, oh yeah, that one's not disclosed yet. But you That's know, our, fine. our thesis is really you know we started off with Bitstamp. It's it you know for a while there was one of the and still is you know one of the top like global exchanges. Um, you know, then we started saying that hey, well, every geography is really really unique. If you go to you know, every single time we do an exchange investment. You know, especially since the beginning, they sent me all around the world. I've been to Brazil. I've been to Argentina. I almost, I almost went to Africa. I avoided it. And <laughs> you know, I, uh, you know, we've been to. I've been to the Philippines. I've been to everywhere just to basically understand regulation, understand how difficult it is to get bank accounts, understand how different it is to market to each of these demographics. So you really need these local teams. And we knew that, like, you know, guys like Coinbase are going to be. Um, interested in expanding to all these different geographies because of, you know, Bitcoin potentially being a store of value, capital controls, things like that. And so, you know, we decided to invest into um, local wallets and exchanges that are going to be providing regulated fiat on-ramps to consumers because we think that there, you know, is a reason uh, for cryptocurrencies to exist for many different use cases and you need liquidity and therefore that's been a huge thesis. We've pretty much gotten, you know, exchange in every single geography out sure. there. And just to be clear, um, I'm, I was incorrect. You guys invested in two funds, excuse me, two exchanges with venture fund number three. Um, yeah, we're in a ton of venture funds too. Yeah, you've, you've invested in Korea. I mean, two several, of our largest exits, uh, Bitstamp and Corbett, have been... Um, you know, acquisitions by, by larger companies. And so, so it's all about that geography aspect. So it's not like there are additional services or, um, you know, ways to operate that would, would result in exchanges being more investable than anything else. It, it just has to do with you seeing them having to exist in very specific They have to exist in those because of regulations. and there's nuances in terms of regulations, banking, marketing to those geographies. And what's interesting is that each geography, you know, is different in terms of some of the use cases. I mean, for instance, Latin America, I think uh, in terms of payments, uh, in terms of lending, those are bigger problems over there than it is, you know, really in the, in the developed world. And so, 
you know, if you, if you get merchants involved, if you get a credit card, a debit card, those are things that just don't necessarily exist. I mean, banking isn't that prevalent. I mean, when we made the investment in the Philippines, there's three times more Facebook accounts than there are bank accounts in the country. Mm -hmm. So when you invest into coins.ph, I mean, uh, there are more, there, about, about um, you know, about a, I think a tenth of the population was using that app. And it was more just because it was a new digital bank than, than cryptocurrency. But crypto was actually a way for them to get, you know, familiar with digital banking. And then from there, like, they were able to pay their bills. They're able to do peer-to-peer -peer payments. I mean, there's nothing that, none of that infrastructure existed in countries like the Philippines. So do you think it's a fool's errand to take a more global approach as an exchange to, you know, operate like, Coinbase, you know, they've moved into several different countries or... And just to, just to add to that, so one portfolio company is Paradex, which is yeah. a relayer built on mm -hmm. the Xerox exchange protocol. Paradex is fairly interesting in that they do actually block certain geographies. So uh, as a resident of, of New York, I have not being able to use Paradox. But there are several other decentralized exchanges out there which are accessible across jurisdictions. I'm thinking primarily yeah. things like uh, Uniswap and, and yeah. uh, several other uh, different exchange solutions. The idea of decentralized exchanges is to facilitate cross-border uh, exchange uh, and to be permissionless. So what does the emergence and proliferation of decentralized exchanges mean for this investment thesis, which sounds like is, is very much reliant on this idea of there continuing to be room for regulatory arbitrage? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we are one of the earliest investors in 0x. We are investors in Paradex, and you know, that was short-lived in terms of it being a private company. Now it's part of Coinbase. That's why they are blocking US and, uh, New York investors, et cetera. So, I think they can coexist. You know, I, I think you're, you're never going to remove the traditional banks. I mean, I, I, think, I, I think you're going to see disruption of banks, but I think fiat will still continue to be there. But, you know, decentralization, uh, cryptocurrencies are, are going to eat into that. And I think decentralized exchanges, there are some limitations right now. They've got to figure out things around you know, KYC regulations, working with the uh, existing infrastructure. And then, of course, like, because it's so transparent, there's some problems in terms of front running and there's problems in terms of scalability, uh, privacy, things like that, which maybe, you know, co uh, companies like Starkware and, and other layer two solutions can kind of help with. So our, our thesis is, you know, we've invested into uh, decentralized exchanges, stable coins, things like that, you know, they are going to exist and, you know, our hope is that they will get bigger and they will kind of work hand in hand with these, uh, these centralized exchanges. But I don't think you're going to see those centralized exchanges really go away because uh, governments are you're just, sure. you know, what about What about when you look at the derivatives market? That's another yeah. side of the coin that, that's been interesting. A lot of platforms have launched in, you know, it's almost like every other week we get a new announcement out of the either institutional exchange side or the derivatives exchange yeah. side. Is That's been one of the most popular sectors of this year. And they range from retail derivatives like BitMEX competitors. You know, we've seen um, guys like Blade. We've seen guys like CoinFlex, FTX. And then we've also seen 
um, you know, on the institutional derivative side. So we've seen, you know, um, BACT and, and ARIS and then, uh, and, and then of course the decentralized derivative side like Vega. So I mean, uh, for us, like we think that that's going to be another way for uh, investors to get involved, mm -hmm. uh, either retail or institutional. And, you know, they all have their, their challenges. I mean, on the retail side, uh, you know, no one's doing, no one's doing KYC, and so it's all just kind of like coming up with these perpetual swaps that have like extreme leverage, and it's like a it's like a it's like a game, right? And it's an addicting game, and people can kind of get in, get out. Versus you know with the institutional, um, and, and it's really just you know from there like you know it's a it's a brand play, it's a marketing play, it's it's a little bit of a technology play, and then on the institutional derivative side, it's it's about you know catering to what institutions want and what institutions care about is really strong custody. And that's what, you know, guys like BACT had to really focus on is, hey, we want to make sure that our custody is top notch so everybody can sort of feel comfortable around that. And then, of course, it's the licensing, right? It's like, sure. hey, can we get the, you know, CFTC? Can we get the DCO, DCM licenses? And, and yeah, so I think, I think derivatives are going to be huge. Actually, if you look at derivative versus spot market, derivative is actually a, a larger market than the spot market right now. And that's why everyone's trying to go after, you know, BitMEX's pie. Yeah. So when you look at those three verticals, you have decentralized exchanges, you have sort of these really um, geographically oriented exchanges, and you have, you know, larger centralized exchanges, Coinbase, Bitstamps of the world. And then derivatives, or derivatives exchanges and institutional exchanges. Which one do you think is the strongest business model, or the most investable? I think I think they're both. I mean, it, it does seem like right now um, the derivative side has has a lot of potential because of the you know the margins you can kind of get on it, especially the way that you design your uh, your instruments. So, you know, I, I think I think they're they're both really really lucrative. And at the end of the day, I mean, um, you know, with, with the spot exchange model, like there's so many different things because uh, you can end up just like uh, Coinbase or just like Binance. I mean, once you have user funds within your ecosystem, then you could do everything from, um, you know, charging and, and setting up your own IEO platforms to lending to... Um, you know, you could, you could do so many different things uh, once you have AUM. And that's, that's, that's kind of what companies are doing right now. They're coming up with different ways to generate AUM. Uh, either it's a spot exchange, a derivative exchange, or maybe it's uh, staking. Okay, like I can provide, I can solve a problem and, and solve a, a really tough problem for people and get people in there. Or I'm going to provide a better security solution. I can provide a lending solution. So it's, it's all about accumulating assets under custody right now. Maybe it's, uh, you know, sort of a decentralized bitwise or a set protocol, you know, things that can basically help solve uh, speculative problems. And at the end of the day, like once you have assets under custody, then there's, you know, other things that you can do to make money off of it. Mm -hmm. What about investing in, you know, let's rewind the clock a little bit and think about, um, where Pantera has, has come, um, you know, obviously the ICO boom was, <laughs> <laughs> was all, insane. Was oh, insane. Once for, in a lifetime. Yeah. And, you know, I remember reporting on it and, and folks at the time were saying this is going to completely overhaul and disrupt the venture capital market. Yeah. Venture capitalists are going to be rendered <laughs> useless. And, and, you know, some people are like, well, no, we're going to, the, the value we'll add will be, you know, at a later stage, we will help companies, you know, you know, 
strategize and and figure things out and and provide that that lending hand as opposed to the actual uh, as opposed to focusing strictly on fundraising um, you guys have an ICO fund the market is a lot different than it was then in fact not to not too long ago or was it well I guess about a year ago um, you guys noted that sizable percentage of some of the ICO project you invested in might actually be securities and you know so where are we now in terms of ICO the ICO market token sales um, and how do you approach that market versus maybe two years ago yeah you know in terms of just like you know the supply of companies doing token sales it's <clears throat> it's dropped significantly you know we've seen a ton of uh, you know I, I think I think back then you know, investors were expecting to invest, get in, and have the ability to get out right away. Uh, now there's a path to liquidity through IEOs, but uh, even so, all of these rounds are looking more like venture, where you're going to have <clears throat> anywhere from nine to two year lockup. So, you know, that's not appealing to a lot of the get in, get out quick investors, and a lot of those were, you know, all around the world, but you know, sure. especially in Asia, and so. You know what you have still around are investors like ourselves, other VC funds. Are you guys getting into IEOs? We're we're going to look at everything, sure. You know, and there's pros and cons to that. Um, do you have the mandate to be able to do that? Yeah. So with our ICO fund, we can invest all the way until uh, and and including the auction itself. So we could be participating in the IEOs, but you know, with these IEO rounds, usually it's a combination of like public and, and private a little bit, uh, or at least like they try to raise around right beforehand just to give themselves a little more capital because maybe they can't raise as much in the IEO round. That was, that was the case with Ampleforth recently, is that correct? Yeah, you know, I think it's a case with a lot of, of projects where there, there is a, a bit of private, a little bit of public, and, uh, and, and so we're, we can do that out of the ICO fund. So that's, that, that's possibly a shift in strategy where you know, we're just going to be investing in some of these, you know, I, I think you're going to have some of these IEO rounds that are compelling. We're still looking at the same things. We're looking at strong teams, strong technology, strong do the, markets. Do the deals look, when you compare I, IEOs and ICOs, and especially the ICOs of 2017, Yeah, is there a similar sort of <laughs> perfusion of crapola? No, I'd say that- Or are the IEO deals stronger? I would say there's less crapola out there. Nice, good you know, word. I'd, I'd say you know there are <clears throat> there are uh, there is some filtering from the exchanges themselves, and uh, and that's helpful. And and so you know for us, I mean you know it's a smaller set of companies. I would say in general, higher quality. And you know I think the differences would be around like you know the economics. I mean you know they're gonna make sure that there's you know certain types of vesting certain types of valuations and, and things like that and then you know we evaluate and, and see if it's worth this uh this early stage vet i think i think that's what's happening quite a bit or you know what we might see is that like a lot of these token projects they're going to be raising equity rounds in the beginning knowing that like you know as you mentioned like there's a lot of things that are going to keep moving in terms of regulations oh, whether totally. it's a security whether it's not so it's like hey we're instead of going the IEO route right away, we're just going to raise an equity round, and we'll give our investors, you know, exposure to both equity and tokens. And then as we go out and we figure things out, we may raise 
multiple rounds, almost like traditionally how companies usually yeah. do it until they finally get to that point where they're going to go and IPO. Well, it's interesting. Recently, I put out a piece on how a lot of token or, or cryptocurrency um, firms are looking to raise equity through traditional mechanisms, as you said, and then directly list onto a token platform and issue a token. So I think as we, you know, when we look into the future, there's going to be various different ways by yeah. which these companies tap into more public markets. Totally. Whether it's through, you know. Look at Algorand. I mean, they didn't do an IEO. They went out there, did their own sort of public sale, and then, you know, got lists on exchanges. They probably had some, you know, a great brand and then some leverage there. There's going to be other folks that maybe, you know, raise just enough capital. I mean, at the end of the day, these exchanges, like, they they want to see the benefit from, from listing you guys. Obviously, the, the benefit from the IEO platform is that they get to, you know, get folks to buy into their token, hold on to it, that sort of thing. But, you know, if they see a great project that would give them a ton of traction um, by a listing, they'll try to figure out ways to make that What's happen. The, what is the preferred, like, if, you, if it was all up to you, Paul, and you could decide ways for companies to, you know, raise capital or to... Um, you know, tap into the public markets? Would it be, is it an IEO? Is it, you know, IPO, reggae? There are all these different mechanisms. What, what's, what do you think is the most effective? I know this is going to be a, <clears throat> a, a, you know, kind of a, a vague answer, but it's, it's, it is case by case, man. Like, if you want to tap into US, U.S. retail investors, and that's kind of where you see your user base starting off in the beginning, and that's where your bread or butter is, it may make sense for you to do a reggae plus, but the thing with the reggae plus is you got to raise enough money to be able to go through that process, right? And so, therefore, if you're going to do a reggae plus, you probably want to do a couple of venture rounds and then do do a reggae plus. If you don't really care as much about you know marketing to U.S., then you may want to you may want to block out the U.S. Then I think it really just depends on, upon what type of project you are. If you are a project that um, you know, can, can move really fast. It's a consumer product. You can really benefit from getting the tokens out to, you know, the, the public right away. And you're, you're able to kind of deal with the public right off the bat. You can go straight into an IEO. But if you're, if you're trying to build a layer one protocol and it's going to take you two years or, or a long time to do so and you do an IEO right away, you're like your token's going to be out there and it's not going to be functioning or, or it's going to be functioning in a, in a really poor way. And then everyone's going to, you know, crapola all over your, your project for the next two years, that, that's not going to work, right? So I think it really depends on what your time to market is, you know, who your audience is, and how much capital you kind of need to do whatever sale you want to do. With the ICO fund, and I guess now the IEO fund, although it's the same fund, what is your strategy once you take custody of these tokens? Is it a long only, okay, we're going to hold these for seven years, kind of the standard venture life cycle? Or are you trading in and out uh, based on particular market cycles? Yeah, you know, for us, uh, you know, we are long-term holders. Uh, you know, I think it, we're, also, we're also fund managers and we have a fiduciary duty to, you know, try to make uh, money for investors. And so what we do is we help these companies you know, all the way up through the ICO, IEO process. And then from there, I mean, we kind of throw them onto our platform. And our platform means connecting with great companies like yourselves, uh, getting the right resources, recruiting, learning about, like, ways to, to, to go out there, build communities, market, et cetera. 
and you know at at the end like if we if it reaches a certain point where we think that it it's hitting sort of peak value then we we will start selling and peak value hopefully is in 5 to 7 years when you know you're reaching a scale of of like ethereum or, or bitcoin or something but you know it could be where it you know it, it it got to a certain point and then all of a sudden like we start seeing companies like dissolving or turning over and and so then we start you know maybe getting out of our position little by little but i think you know we have a couple of points of of you know uh decision making and usually that involves peak value around uh you know we think it's 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 reached you know a tremendous high or we think that things are going south or i guess the other point would be like you know if if something goes up like you know a thousand x right away i mean you know it may be prudent to take a little bit off the table so did that type of strategy protect you from the market of 2018 yeah you know we've you know i think with the market of 2018 like that was just insane right like it was it was sort of hard to predict you know what kind of a drop we were going to have and uh you know what time period you know so i think for us like you know we we do whatever we can to to you know to protect ourselves and that means like you know just kind of trying to understand the market and and seeing how trends have have been going in the past in terms of performance and you know we actually have a a quant team on uh, part of Pantera where they analyze a lot of the uh data out there whether it's data around sentiment data around past IEO ICO performances data around like movements of of capital things like that and so we're very very diligent about sort of using you know a lot of these uh insights to help uh direct us on the ICO and even the digital asset fund the you know multi strat long short fund that's uh, active interesting when you th- you think that's something that maybe helps you stand out in terms of the other funds that are in the space and we've seen so many hedge funds in the space pivot to venture capital and new players coming online like paradigm and and others that you know could give you a run for your money so to speak right how do you maintain a competitive advantage in a, a space and i think this is the same in traditional venture capital or non crypto venture capital a space where there are only going to be a few players key players who get their hands on a lot of the deal flow and before we turn the mics on you were kind of talking about how yeah. you know you elbow your way into a lot of these deals yeah. um how do you make sure maybe it's the quants uh that you've got yeah. going over there or maybe it's something else how do you maintain that position i can i can think of a few different uh bullet points i mean i think number one our team you know with it's it's super complimentary you know dan with his decades of institutional fund management experience being a tiger cub that network is just tremendous and the experiences that he's had managing funds and companies joey being the founder of auger writing more smart track uh smart contract code than almost anybody else you know starting one of the more interesting companies in the space the operational experience behind that me being in venture capital for the last 9 years doing more deals than anybody else in the space building like the largest network helping all the these companies <laughs> understatement no <laughs> and, but i think i think number 1 you know you, you get the team number 2 you have the track record you know like a couple of guys coming in like recently like they haven't been through the ups and downs like you know some people may get scared when bitcoin drops sure. like 50% you know so it's it's having the stomach to do these things um but we were talking about this at the Walgreens the other day tail 
first mover advantage, not that it's important for the listeners to know where the conversation happened, but it was at a Walgreens. First mover advantage isn't necessarily that important. And so I think going beyond that, how do you evolve? For us, like it's building out this platform. And so we're building out scalable ways to help our companies connect with each other, connect with other value-added resources, uh, other vendors, uh, sources of capital, even doing seminars around governance, you know, IEOs, a lot of education, you know, throwing summits. Um, you know, so I think it's, it's, it's going beyond that and creating that platform and then, you know, Outside of that, I mean, I think you just mentioned it already, like the way that we're structured is pretty fascinating too. Like other VC funds, like they'll invest in a project, especially a token project, and they'll be like, okay, like what do I do in terms of how to manage that capital? How do I add value? Well, when we invest into a token project, it's like, you know, we can use data from our quant team to help educate us on when to, you know, get, get out of uh, tokens to, you know, how do you liquidate tokens? Well, we have infrastructure built within our team to best execute that or the right partners to best execute that to even like, um, you know, some of the provi data providers that, that those guys use could potentially become investments on the VC side. And then also like, you know, if they need liquidity, you know, we're invested in all the exchanges, right? So we can easily connect them to sources of liquidity. And so there's just so many different, um, you know, synergistic values across each of the different strategies that we have. Not a lot of funds actually have different teams and, and different funds and strategies they can kind of tap into. What's interesting about this platform and ancillary services that you provide is that the Pantera team, as far as I can tell, is, is still very much a, a lean operation. Yeah. How many team members do you have at present? Yeah, in terms of investment team members, we have seven. And in terms of team members in general, we have 25. So, you know, again, the investment team is, is fairly lean compared to uh, other teams, especially ones that have the AUM that we have. You know, I think for us, we've pride ourselves in providing really good, I, I guess, customer support. Uh, you know, so we have a, a, quite a few LPs and therefore we have a finance team, we have an operations team, a support team, you know, a couple guys on capital formation. And so it's really kind of set up to support, you know, the, the type of uh, structure that we have uh, in terms of Are funds. Are you looking to build out that platform in terms of adding additional types of services? And maybe then that would require you to hire more folks or? You know, we're always, you know, we're always open to it. You know, we're always thinking about like, Is there you know, anything specific Frank wants though? a job. Yeah, <laughs> get me out of this place. <laughs> yeah. I, I think for us, like, we're never going to, you know, do an incubator or we're yeah, never going to do a like co-working space. Or, sure. you know, I think for us, it's all about, like, adding on new investment products. Such that, as what? What might be the next? I don't know. Maybe, like maybe if it'll you're be looking like, at uh, three or something. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's, like, some sort of index. Maybe it's something that, um, I don't know, an ETF. It could be... Uh, you know, it, it could Please, be... Please, we don't need another ETF. Yeah. <laughs> but how would that help the main business? How would that make you better at being an investor, having yeah. an ETF product out in the market? You know, I think for us, like, it's just, you know, similar to, like, how you guys make product decisions, you know, the way that we think about launching new investment products is it's really just driven by, you know, what our investors are or what our potential investors are telling us. And so right now we have four strategies all in their separate fund structures. If people are crying for some sort of like 
smart index product and there's a ton of capital crying for it, then like we may do something like that. If people are, are, are crying for like an all-encompassing like, you know, master fund, you know, maybe we'll, we'll do something around that. Maybe, you know, so I think it's really driven by investor demand. So uh, that's kind of how we, we kind of look at things. And of course, looking at like what else is out in the market and what else is doing very well. And if we have the, uh, the team members and the assets to be able to, you know, make a product like that happen, then we'll, uh, we'll do so. Now I'd like to thank our phenomenal sponsor, BlockFi. With BlockFi, you can earn interest on your crypto and access the value of your digital assets without selling. The BlockFi interest account offers up to 6.2% APY on Bitcoin and up to 3.3% APY on Ether in a time of low-yielding investments. And it's consistently shown the best rates in the industry. All of the blocks Bitcoin and Ethereum holders wish they had signed up earlier. BlockFi right now is offering the Scoop listeners, that's you, an exclusive no minimum deposit promotion. You can start earning up to 6.2% APY on your crypto with no minimum balance required. Just visit BlockFi.com Scoop. That's BlockFi.com Scoop to get started with your exclusive offer. Sign up for the BlockFi interest account and make your first deposit to start earning interest on your crypto today. Everybody knows Pantera is one of the leading industry funds and one of the, if not, if not the oldest fund. Um, things do go wrong though. What have you guys gotten wrong over the last couple of years? Yeah, I, th I think I think for us, like one challenge that we're running into recently, and um, you know, have run into in the past, is is that this space is still really early, and, and we all know that. Like we're we're at the the first half inning, and even with that, as an investor, if you're starting to take larger bets and leading rounds, um, you know, your your thesis is that you're going to be investing into companies that are going to be multi-billion dollar companies and that means that they're going to gener uh, generate the returns that you want and also dominate one or multiple verticals but you know when you're focused on one space uh, you're not really quite sure sometimes how companies are going to evolve so you're starting to see companies like start to eat into each other's spaces and therefore you have to be really careful when you make an investment uh, knowing that like it may run into another space and you might be blocked out of another deal. So uh, in general, in the past, we have been not able to invest into some of the more transformative companies because we we're blocked out by investing into a company that uh, either is in the same space that, again, first mover, but first mover didn't win, or it was a company that ended up moving into a space that you know, someone else. What are some do. of those companies that you think you missed out on? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I guess uh, I'll just, you know, we're, we're not in Binance. So, you know, there was... Uh, Rough. We're, we're, in, we're in exchanges and, you know, sometimes when you get into a lot of exchanges, sometimes you, you kind of you miss out on so that, That's one that I'll name, yeah. Interesting. We could get into that. <laughs> what do you like about Binance? I mean, I think with Binance, like, they, 
they were, you know, CZ, you know, with his experience, like looking at what he did at BitPay and then, you know, having that experience yeah, bringing it over to Asia. He has a huge high-frequency trading background. Yeah, his yeah. background is just ridiculous. And, and the fact impressive. that, like, he saw a multi-token world moving really quickly and he's like, okay, well, you know, the way for me to kind of, you know, get through regulations quicker is basically launch a token-to-token exchange and then situate myself outside of China and then... From there, I mean, it was really just kind of like coming up with innovative, innovative products. I mean, and, and uh, everything from like still right now, like being really quickly about like setting up an operation in the U.S. You know, kind of you know generating like uh, the Binance token, which is pretty phenomenal in terms of like uh, you know how that's performed and how he's been able to sort of generate that to uh, you know you know get people like retained within the platform. And you know, he's just pushing pushing all the different things that that you should be in terms of trying out new products and um, you know just moving really quickly and he's been able to kind of I think the regulatory part was just like the big piece he was like, the first one to kind of just get out there like really establish like Malta as like a place to kind of set up shop and then like you know kind of moving forward around that and so yeah it's been really impressive do you think it'd be wise for coinbase to kind of mimic that strategy we've kind of seen them do it to an extent by really ramping up coin listings yeah you know they, they've done a, you know, they, they, they've announced that, like, they were doing something around their, you know, DAP platform. They're announcing, like, moving into different geographies. They, they announced, like, prime brokerage stuff. And, you know, they're trying a, a bunch of different things and, and, and seeing what's going to work for them. But, you know, they do have a huge advantage right now. And the huge advantage is that they are, you know, the biggest players in the United States with the, you know, sort of the largest, you know, user base and also regulation wise i mean they're probably if not the farthest along so you know having that moat uh it's going to be tougher for them to move as fast without giving up that so who wins though right <laughs> you know i I, th I think the the pie is large enough for both of them to win but i, I you know i'd say binance right now is uh looking pretty good interesting and how much consolidation do you think we'll see in the exchange space i think we're going to see a lot more consolidation going forward i, I think exchanges are going to be really uh, buyers that, of a lot of the uh, exchanges and other companies too. Is that something you are pushing your portfolio companies towards? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm pushing all of our portfolio companies to, you know, just be heads down, create product. And, you know, if the value is there and, and, and the, the money is there and it's, it's worth it, you know, you know, exchanges are going to be huge acquirers. So if, if you are trying to facilitate any sort of M&A, you're going to have to, you know, have exchanges and, um, you know, strategic partners as, as, as those on the top of your list. Do you see, do you have, like, a window into some of these deals that maybe didn't work out, acquisitions maybe that didn't work out or haven't? Yeah, so the neat thing about being... Because we've heard tons of rumors, you know, on our side about, you know, certain exchanges in talks to get acquired, you know. Uh, I remember hearing rumors about BitMEX getting acquired by a large... Hong Kong firm, there was a exchange that approached Coinbase for an acquisition, but you know, the valuation was crazy high. Is that stuff that you see in your seat or? Yeah, so again, anything that happens with our portfolio companies, we're gonna see. And so we are in a bunch of exchanges. Some of them are gonna get acquisition offers. Some of them are going to want to acquire other companies. And you know, we're in a neat position where if some of our companies aren't doing as well, we have to help with that process or other companies will come to us and say, well, you know, we're looking to partner, get acquired, are any of your companies potential fits? 
uh, sometimes corporations come to us and they're like, well, you know, we're looking to do certain things around blockchain. Uh, we'd like to start off with some partnerships, but that may lead to, you know, an M&A discussion. And so, you know, VCs are at, you know, the, the center of the ecosystem in terms of facilitating some of these deals. On the exchange front, I actually do not know how many exchanges you have invested in. I have six. It's probably like 15, I think. 15? Okay. Something like that. Sounds about right. How many exchanges is too many exchanges? At what point do you stop making investments in exchanges and move on to a different category? Never. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think for us, like, the different categories of exchanges. We're going to have a centralized exchange in every geography. I think we're getting pretty close. What do you mean by every geography, though? Do you mean like country by country or North American exchange? Great question. Yeah, I think well, I'm chock full of them. Paul. No, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think um, you know we look at market size, right? And so Latin America, you know, there may be you know two or three different exchanges. Maybe Brazil, Mexico. Um, you know, Europe might be one just because like. It's, it, banking isn't as fragmented. You got SEPA, you know, you got the, you know, the license that passports around the EU, US will be one. I think uh, Asia, Southeast Asia might be like its own separate thing. You got the Middle East. And so, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not that many, but I, I think, you know, there's different types of centralized exchanges. You know, there's some that might be focused a bit more on retail and some that might be focused on derivatives, right? So there's a little bit of a difference over there. And then you have a category of decentralized exchanges. But I think in general, we are getting up to that point of saturation where right now like you know the bar is going to be pretty high in terms of differentiation for us to invest into like another exchange and what's interesting is that we haven't seen a new binance a new bitmax really come onto the scene we've seen lots of exchange launches yeah we haven't seen any of these new exchange i guess Deribit's getting pretty close Deribit, but yeah simply because they're one of the few exchanges that Offer option trading, right? Yeah, um, very true. But uh, but we haven't seen any of these newly launched exchanges capture significant market share in the same way that Binance did yeah. in late 2017, early 2018. Um, I don't know what my question was. <laughs> was that a question or was that a comment? I think you were just <laughs> pontificating. I was just pontificating. Yeah. Let's um, let's switch it up a bit. Go ahead. Move away from exchanges. <laughs> Here's something I'm interested in. All right. You guys are investors in Zcash. Yeah. Uh-oh. How are you thinking about the dev fund proposal? Yeah, you know, I think um, with every investment that we do, uh, you know, we're always going to try to figure out, you know, how, how, do, how, do, we, how do we continue to provide, you know, really good governance to these projects and part of it's around like developing. So, you know, we're there to support them. We're there to, you know, we're, we're early investors in Zcash. So that means that like there's things that we can do economically ourselves that can affect, you know, how they're funded going forward. And then on top of that, be Could able you to elaborate around what those things might be? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I can't get into too much detail, but, you know, basically like, you know, we, we could share the pile a little bit more, you know, I mean, I guess. Um, and, and then in terms of, uh, and I think some of this is already public, you just kind of dive deeper into it, but like, you know, we get a, you know, we have a, a portion of, of the company, we can give some back and, you know, that sort of thing. Sure. And then, and then in terms of, you know, going forward, I mean, yeah, I mean, 
a lot of this stuff is just like unknown territory, right? I mean, they were the, one of the earliest guys to do it. So they came up with a way where they got some, they got some seed funding and investors get uh, a portion of the tokens. And then they were able to like come up with the model, like fund themselves. But, you know, at that time, they weren't quite sure how things were going to look like in terms of their burn and, and whatnot. And so, you know, we're, we're helping them brainstorm and trying to figure this out because, you know, at the end of the day, like we want to keep those guys around and whether it's, you know, to have a portion of the tokens continue to go to them or whether it's other ways for them to um, monetize. Maybe it's like some sort of a red hat model where they get revenues that way. They can kind of help, you know, you know, fund both the, the, the business model over there and some sort of like open source development. You know, we'll see. But, you know, we're continuing to, you know, stay in touch with all of our companies. Can we expect to see Pantera publish some kind of proposal in the same way that Placeholder published a rather thorough proposal as to how they're thinking about the decision? And I think Placeholder even presented exact figures as far as the as far as how funds should be allocated once the initial four year mm -hmm. founders reward runs out. Yeah, you might you might see something from that. I mean it's definitely not out of the question. You know, I think for us like we're gonna be uh, you know, we're just gonna be very, you know, strategic in, in how we can really help out our companies and you know we definitely have a lot of folks looking at us to try to, you know, um, educate them on like what what projects should do etc so you know we're going to continue to share our thoughts you know through our newsletters and, and things like that and um, you know that could be one of them and just the the last Zcash related question if the proposal doesn't pass how will that affect Pantera's Zcash investment thesis you know you know I think it's one of those things where you know, we're gonna, you know, just like every other company, you evaluate, you know, how much burn that they have and you evaluate like the different options from there. If, if that option doesn't work, then we'll, you know, try to explore other, other options. We're gonna help our companies all the way to the end. Um, you know, Zcash is a long-term investment for us. We really believe in privacy. We think that that is, you know, a feature that people want, um, whether it's in its own chain or whether it's, uh, you know, part of another chain, you know, we'll see how it evolves. But yeah, we'll just continue to try to figure out other options. That's the interesting thing about Zcash is that you mentioned Zcash, the company. Really, you guys are investors in Zcash, the protocol, and the Electric Coin Co., which is currently led by Zuku Wilcox, is, is really separate from Zcash, right? They are just a, essentially a development shop that has been built around Zcash yeah. and, and Shaw has been funded sure. primarily through uh, some of this founder's reward, but your allegiance is to the protocol rather than to ECC, is that correct? So this is kind of how I see companies going forward in terms of funding. I mean, I, I like the Zcash model where we invested into the company and we also got some tokens from it. So we are aligned on both sides to be helpful in general. And, you know, I think there's some overlap because, you know, again, like the funding that was going into the company also was developing uh, the open source protocol. And so, you know, we have, we have alignment to try to help, you know, both sides of it. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, we do see, at least for right now, a lot of the value accruing on the token side. And so, you know. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that goes back to, um, you know, a lot of my research and 
direct listings. There are a lot of companies or a lot of investors who only have exposure via the equity and not the token, and they're kind of they don't benefit from that um, from being involved in both. Um, and so they want to see the those companies either you know like Ripple might be an example. If I'm an investor in Ripple's equity, I don't get the benefits of XRP yeah. um, trading. However, you get you get trades. that you get that I guess quote unquote indirect exposure Dude, where because they have XRP on their balance sheet, right? So yeah, yeah, exactly. And and so I think I think alignment of having you know we're investing in these people, you know what I mean? We're we're investing in these teams now. These teams could be doing a company that gets revenue. They could be doing a token. You know, they could be even doing a, a donut shop. I mean, whatever I'm investing in this company, I want these. I, I want whatever these guys produce to be, you know, part of part of the. What value. do you What do you look for yeah. in the people that you're looking to invest in? What are the qualities? Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I think you know it's helpful if you know folks have you know experience. What was it about Mike Dudas? <laughs> it's that hair man you guys he does have good being hair. a hair guy seeing his hair you know what i mean you do like, have good hair <laughs> no but in all seriousness yeah um, you know i think i think folks um I'll, I'll, actually i'll talk about mike i'm uh, you know so no so we already talked about the block at the beginning <laughs> just generally so it's in general like what is similar about the block to other companies serial entrepreneurs guys have done it before um and guys that have done it before even within a certain area like for instance, um, in, in cryptocurrencies, uh, it is heavily or it will be regulated. So people that have gone through and gotten, you know, or, or have participated and, and led uh, companies that have gone through regulated businesses, I think is, is super helpful. Domain expertise in terms of the verticals that they're, they're tackling. If it's consumer business, they've been part of consumer businesses before. If it's enterprise business, they're part of enterprise businesses before. But nevertheless, even with new entrepreneurs, I mean, what, what are their backgrounds? Like, how do they think about the business? How do they think about the business going forward? How do they think about the different hurdles? And how do they think about overcoming those hurdles? And what are the strengths? What are their weaknesses? If they have weaknesses, you know, are there teams, or sorry, are, are there other members of that founding team that make up for those weaknesses? You know, we like complementary teams. You know, if there's a CEO, there better be someone that can, you know, be a CTO or look at the technology. If they're a consumer product, I mean, you know, it'd be great to have maybe an early member be a designer or someone that's a growth person. And so I think, you know, what, it's experience, you know, it's domain expertise, it's, you know, complementary skill sets. It's guys that, like, know how to react in certain situations, certain challenges. And really, like, you know, guys that just, they're, they're just willing to, like, bust through walls. What's the biggest turnoff? I think, I think, I think the biggest... for your money. I think the biggest turnoff is probably someone that's super cocky. There's there's some there's there's a difference between being confident and being cocky. If someone's super cocky, then I'm there, there's a part of me that's gonna be like, this guy is not, this guy is not gonna listen to anything that I say. And you know, I may be wrong 90% of the time, but you know, there there may be 10% where I am right, and he's never gonna be able to like see that. You know what I mean? And so I want someone that I can work with, and if if it's someone that I can't have a relationship with, you know, it's a marriage, right? These things last longer than most marriages. So, you know, if I'm not getting along with that person, <laughs> you know, I'm going to be, uh, it's just not the right fit. What percentage of deals that come across your desk do you turn down? A lot. I mean, oh, it has to be like tons. Yeah, tons. I mean, you know, especially if you, if you count like the ICO days and we were seeing like 
200 ICO projects, like Crapola is like a, you know, a month at least, you know, it's wow. like, yeah. So we were seeing a, a ton of projects, you know, I think it's volume has slowed down a little bit just cause like the Crapola slowed down, but nevertheless, like we see it, we see a ton of deals. That's I mean. interesting. Well, I know that you have your meeting with, with Mike after this. So I think that is a great place to leave off Paul, unless Teo has. I have one more question. All right. I think it's this a good is, one. Is this to, the kicker? Is, is this, is is this, this the, the kicker we needed? Bitcoin price prediction? <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's, price. Related. it's related. It's related. prediction. Is the halving priced in? I think the halving is priced in. So do I. I, I think, I think, I, I think there's so many, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this happens so many times. I mean, you know, I, th I think, I think having like these like conference pumps, you know, I, I, maybe, maybe the block pumps aren't pricing. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I think the having price is pricing. Excellent. And on that note, thank you so much for joining us and yeah, taking thanks the for time. Me. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Scoop. We hope you tune in next time. And don't forget to subscribe and favorite wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer -peer payments app to support Bitcoin. And it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code it's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode.